AI is not just the stuff of science fiction. It's all around us, making suggestions for what movies we can watch, deciding if we qualify for a loan, or identifying us from a photograph. And AI will only become more prevalent as time goes on, with huge corporations utilizing it to do more, and to learn more about us. Pushing the boundaries of what we can do, we lose sight of the question of what we should do. Many of our decisions are being handed off to AI systems. These decisions aren't simple. Sometimes they have cultural, emotional, or even ethical components. But what exactly is ethics? Can you teach a computer to be ethical? How do you quantify ethics? Can it be quantified? And how do we even begin to teach it to AI systems? So it's interesting to note that there are thinkers who question what is ethical and moral when using AI. Even more interesting, the Pope himself has taken a special interest in this question, bringing together thinkers, ethicists, and leaders in the technological field in the Vatican. Today, we're talking to one of these thinkers. This is Spark Dialogue Podcasts. You can find us at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or wherever you find your podcasts. Spark Dialogue tells the stories of science and technology and how they relate to religion, ethics, culture, and how we identify ourselves as human. I'm your host, Elizabeth Fernandez. Hi, my name is Brian Green. I'm the Director of Technology Ethics at the Markola Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University. Smarter, faster, stronger. So goes AI. Artificial intelligence has so many ethical issues associated with it because it's a very powerful technology. Everything that humans already do with our own natural intelligence, we can do with artificial intelligence, but to a greater extent and faster. AI is so powerful and so fast, we are relying on it more and more. This makes ethics in AI even more important to understand. This means that anything that we can do, both good and bad, can be automated using artificial intelligence, which uh, is a very, very powerful and, uh, you know, it's, it's just a really powerful technology. And the more power you have, the more responsibility you have, and therefore the more need for ethics. In understanding artificial intelligence, first of all, we have to understand intelligence. It's more than just knowing how to add two and two. It's being able to look at an image and understand there's a coffee cup there, rather than just a random collection of pixels. It's being able to make a decision between two viable options. And then there are emotions. And what about morality? So my understanding of intelligence is that intelligence is very comprehensive. It's everything that humans can do. So it includes wiggling our fingers. It includes the emotions we experience. It includes you know, a very bodily experience. And that's why I think a lot of artificial intelligence is actually, even though we've seen such incredible advances in the last few years, a lot of AI is still really, really far behind. So can emotions and morality things that are so closely related to ethics, including so closely related to our human experience, ever hope to be duplicated by an AI? Some things may be impossible for AI to really simulate or or to represent or reproduce, maybe is the right word for it. Um, It's not clear that AI can ever be conscious, for example. I think there's very strong arguments against that possibility. Uh, The fact that we can have consciousness in our own minds gives us the thought that maybe it can be uh, represented in an artificial format. But at the same time, it's very difficult to know what that would be or how you would actually achieve that end. Because right now, what AI can do is is a very good simulation of, of uh, understanding, perhaps. So, for example, GPT-3, which is a 
technology that's come out of OpenAI is very good at producing text that reproduces human, like basically verbal communication or written communication. However, you can see when you're looking at that, that it is not representing any sort of understanding. It doesn't understand what it's talking about. It gives a simulation of understanding, perhaps, but it, it can't make uh, overall argument about things. It can't maintain a cohesive thought for a long period of time over paragraphs, for example. Um, there are a lot of limitations to it. And if we're talking about emotion or something like that, it's not clear if we would even want AI to be able to do that, right? Do we do we want to have angry AIs or sad AIs? I think that might be something that we actually want to avoid pretty strongly. It may surprise you to know that the Vatican is actually very interested in AI, and namely, ethics associated with AI. To this end, they actually held a conference in 2019. This conference called Robotics, Artificial Intelligence, and Humanity, Science, Ethics, and Policy, brought together tech leaders, think places like IBM and Microsoft, with leaders from the church, ethicists, and even the Pope. And as it turns out, Brian. So this conference was, uh, let's see, I believe it was in 2019, and there were actually two conferences that were right next to each other. There was one that was a more closed conference, so it was very small, and then there was a larger conference that was hosted by the Jesuits in uh, Rome. And actually, I should mention the first conference was hosted by the Dominicans, so we had the Dominicans and the Jesuits, two different orders of Catholic priests who were, who were kind of hosting conferences on AI. And they brought together, as you were saying, they brought together business leaders, they brought together academics, they brought together church leaders, and it was a very fascinating conference talking about the ethics of AI and not only AI, but technology in a in kind of a larger perspective. What really are we doing with this technology? Are we promoting the common good? Are we making a world that's going to be improving and getting better in the future? Or are we opening ourselves up with vulnerabilities and dangers that could, you know, potentially damage society and harm people? And of course, you know, ever since the kind of incidents of 2016 and how social media was used in the election then, uh, there have been a lot of controversies about, uh, you know, the overall benefit of technology to society. Is it making us better? Is it making us worse? Is it polarizing and radicalizing people through various, you know, social media outlets and things like that? So these conferences exist because basically Pope Francis wants them to exist. Pope Francis is, it turns out, he's very interested in artificial intelligence and he has expressed to various people in the Vatican that he wants to have people working on this as a subject because he recognizes that this is a powerful technology and as a powerful technology it's going to uh, potentially cause harm in the world. The Pope also has an interest in understanding how the developing world interacts with technology. Being, you know, from Argentina, where he's seen how a developing nation interacts with the rest of the world and how very often technology just passes them by and doesn't ever ask their opinion on uh, how the technology should be developed or deployed. Uh, he's very concerned with the way AI could potentially harm large swaths of the human population around the world rather than actually helping people. And of course, he recognizes that the people developing the technology are very likely to be strongly benefited by it because they were, they'll make good investments, you know, they'll have a good return on their investment. However, that doesn't necessarily uh, facilitate the common good for all of humanity. These conferences encourage tech leaders and those who use AI systems to look at the big picture, 
Look beyond just what AI can do for you. Look beyond the bottom line and the money that using AI can make for you. The hope is to go beyond this, to look at the big picture, and to see how AI is affecting culture, our interactions as humans, and what issues we need to think about in ethics. The good news is that the conferences are ongoing. The idea is to continue these dialogues going forward into the future, to continue talking about these things. And actually, they've been productive. They get people in industry to think about, oh, we should be talking more about ethics. And so when a business leader uh, starts talking more about ethics, other business leaders listen to them. And I think that one of the reasons that AI ethics has become and not just AI ethics, but ethics overall in technology has become more of a subject recently is actually because of these ideas from these conversations and conferences at the Vatican and through very careful consideration of how to talk about these things. So when business leaders start talking about this, like I said, they they uh, they talk to each other. They start uh, realizing that they should do something, right? They can set up organizations, for example, the Partnership on AI, or they can set up, uh, you know, within a corporation, they can set up something uh, within their corporation that talks about uh, ethics and society and what the impacts are of the technology that they are producing. And so this has happened with a lot of corporations now. And it happened, it's happened not only because of what the Vatican's doing, but of course, because the United Nations is also talking about these sorts of issues. The World Economic Forum is also talking about these sorts of issues. And also, it's something that has been, you know, it's been a live conversation in culture for decades now. You have, to, you can just think of all the movies that have AI in them as some sort of, you know, either protagonist or antagonist, right? All the way back into the 1980s or, or even further back uh, into the 1960s. But particularly in the last few decades, people have been thinking a lot about these issues. And so because it's thankfully a live issue in our culture, it's something that people are sensitive to. And it's really, it's not only a top down as in these big globalist organizations are thinking about this stuff. It's also really coming from individuals who have uh, thought about, you know, what is my technology really being used for? And how can I make sure that it's being used for the best purposes that it can fulfill and not some of the worst? The goal of these conferences is not just to make a one-time set of rules, a 10 commandments of AI, if you will, it's to keep the dialogue open, to understand that what AI can do and what we ask it to do is constantly changing. One of the Vatican's initiatives was called the Rome Call for AI Ethics, to bring together leaders of tech giants like IBM and Microsoft with thinkers in the Vatican. It was part of the Pontifical Academy for Life, and the Pontifical Academy for Life was interested in, in producing this conversation to talk about AI ethics in order that AI would be used for, you know, good purposes and not bad purposes. Once again, that, that you know, very general uh, objectives. And so, you know, thankfully, uh, Microsoft and IBM and other organizations signed on to this and they agree that they want to do that. That's just one part of what's going on at the Vatican. And they're continuing that dialogue. It's actually it's an exciting dialogue. It's good to see uh, what they're talking about. Uh, they've talked a little bit about agriculture and food, for example, proceeding onwards from that original conference that they had. It's not just about how AI is making decisions and affecting us people. It's also about how AI affects us as a culture affecting our relationships, and affecting how we interact. If AI is constantly catering to our desires and always giving us what we want, so for example, as we're going through our social media feed or something like that, it shows us, you know, the algorithm shows us what it thinks we want to see. 
And if that happens continuously and in more and more areas of life, pretty soon we are very happy with the way we interact with technology, but we're less happy with the way we interact with actual human beings. And this creates a kind of frustrating situation where technology always gives you what you want, but other human beings don't always get you what you want. And this actually is detrimental to human relationships and how we interact with each other. And these are these phenomena are becoming more and more understood as they become more widespread, they become more understood. That might be the way to describe it. Um, and of course, other anthropological issues would include, you know, what is this doing to the level of society at the political level? What is it doing in terms of, uh, you know, our society? How, how do we feel about uh, the fact that social media now mediates most of the information that we see online? Uh, because people spend hours and, you know, collectively billions and trillions of hours on social media. It's really, really powerful technology, and it has not had the type of uh, ethical analysis that it really needs to have. We've seen this already. Take this example. You're scrolling through your favorite social media channel, looking at posts from family, friends, and your social media circle. You're not just seeing the latest posts, though. You're seeing what that social media algorithm wants you to see. What have you clicked on in the past? What have you liked? It'll show you more of that, and less of the things that you have ignored. You see, the algorithm associated with social media channels wants you to stay on their platform for as long as possible. But what this leads to is an echo chamber. You see more and more of the posts related to things that you like, and less of the things you don't. What's more, a lot of times, the truth is too boring. Any center viewpoints are less exciting than what the radical sides are doing. And with time, we're seeing more and more radical videos, more viewpoints on the fringe. We're becoming more and more polarized. I teach a class on AI ethics. We were talking about this exact subject just last night in the class. YouTube, for example, or other social media, they can be very radicalizing influences on society. And so... Um, there is an article that came out a few years ago in the New York Times where a researcher had said, look, if you look up vegetarianism on YouTube, it starts giving you videos on veganism. And if you look up jogging, it starts showing you videos on ultramarathoning. It doesn't matter what you do. It's going to try to show you the most extreme form of that because that is what it has discovered maintains your attention. It keeps your eyeball on the screen. And ultimately, that's how they make money. Now, in AI, we talk about something called the AI value alignment problem, which is that the value that the AI is maximizing for might not actually be the best value for society to be maximized for. So, for example, keeping our eyeballs on a screen is not actually probably a very good thing for society. It might be great for the corporation because it's showing you more advertising, but it's not going to be good for society because we're not interacting with each other. And at the same time, we could be getting more radicalized. And so that, uh, that radicalization is actually, while it might be great for the companies that are producing the content, is not necessarily going to be great for the rest of society as we become more and more polarized and balkanized in our uh, you know, separation from each other. One thing to think about from the opposite perspective would be that if YouTube wanted to, or if another social media platform wanted to, they could actually try to, instead of radicalizing people, bring everyone towards the center. They have that power to do that. Uh, it might not maintain people's 
eyeballs, right? It might actually be that people get bored and they leave. Um, they go do something else. However, it would prevent people from getting radicalized and separated into such uh, polarized different, uh, you know, bubbles separated from each other. But at the same time, there's also a danger there, which would be that new ideas would not get propagated through society as easily. Um, everybody would start thinking more similarly to each other. So there are these dangers and tensions that have to be negotiated here with these sorts of value alignment problems. And like I said, with the value alignment problem, it's not only uh, far in the future when people talk about, uh, you know, an artificial general intelligence trying to, you know, do something for humanity. It's happening right now in the way that corporations operate, because corporations can be thought of as like an artificial intelligence in some way. It's how people scale our intelligence, right? How do we take an intelligence that's limited to our heads and actually extend that outwards into something where we interact with each other and then use technology to, to uh, uh, grow the scale and, uh, and speed even more? When you think about it, these companies can control what we view, what kind of news we're exposed to, and who we interact with. They have enormous power. So how do we make sure that these decisions that the companies are making are ethical? So this is a great question. This is actually a large field of, of work that I do, which is working with technology companies specifically on how to think ethically about the technology that they're producing. So I've worked, for example, with with Google. Google has had a blog post where they talk about their work with the Markula Center um, and the fact that we have, uh, you know, they've used some of our tools and implemented those into workflows at Google Cloud. Uh, we've also, I've been working with uh, Microsoft and Salesforce through the World Economic Forum, and I have a paper coming out uh, with, with Microsoft and the World Economic Forum uh, later this month that is going to be specifically on how Microsoft has started implementing this sort of ethical thinking in their corporation. And it's actually, it's a really fascinating uh, topic because ultimately companies don't want to be bad. They want to do the right thing. They they don't want to destroy society. They have to live in society. You know, the workers, you know, they don't they don't get a choice to, to, to go home to some different planet at night, right? They have to live on earth in the United States. Or if they're in a different country, they have to live in that country. They have to live with the ramifications of the technology, the technological choices that they're producing. The question is the implementation problem, right? Is how do you actually do this? And how do you do it in a way that also makes the company money? Because that's what the company's job is to do. Um, and so once again, you can think of the value alignment problem, right? Corporations are aligned towards maximizing shareholder value. That's a legal requirement in the United States. However, for most of the history of capitalism, uh, people have thought about this a little bit more broadly and not just capitalism, right? That, that, how does an economy work? An economy is supposed to be maximizing the common good that we share with each other. And so I think this more common good perspective is becoming more widespread now. Uh, it has uh, different terminology that people use. For example, uh, one, one academic called it uh, optimizing collective value or something like that, right? But ultimately, it's how do we actually make a better society together? Corporations should be facilitating that and not harming that. Uh, and if they are harming it, they should be stopped from harming it. And the question is how to do that. Is it is it going to be done through government regulation or can it be done at a more internal level, right, where they make the right choices on their own in the first place? Now, an unethical decision that an AI makes might not always be obvious. Let's take an example that's being used today. When you apply for a loan, information about you is fed into an algorithm. This algorithm then decides if you would be a good candidate for that loan. It tells the lender whether or not you should be approved. Lots of lenders use algorithms like this. They make it possible to wade through a lot of information about people and also being able to qualify people 
or not, much quicker than a human could. But it's hard, if not impossible, to tell how that AI is making its decision. It sees complex correlations, connections that might be impossible to trace or to understand. And then, to further complicate the issue, biases in society can leak into these algorithms. It could lead to people of certain races, religions, or economic statuses being rejected for a loan more often than others. But if you can't tell how an AI is making its decision, how can you tell if it's being ethical? There are some companies who generally don't want to to be having biased software, right? This is something that a lot of companies have recognized recently. And actually, if you go back um, a couple of years and say, hey, could you give us an explanation of how your algorithm is operating? A lot of them would say, oh, that's impossible. Nobody can understand how a neural network operates. It's, you know, all statistical blobs and they don't make sense and et cetera, et cetera. Well, it turns out, actually, you can. Uh, and they've developed the tools in the last couple of years where they can do this to a pretty good extent now. Um, so, for example, in the work that I've been doing with Microsoft, they have uh, they have something called FairLearn. FairLearn uh, lets you look through a data set and, and look for biases in the data set. Uh, they also have something called InterpretML that allows you to interpret the machine learning uh, algorithms and what's going on in that model. Uh, they have other tools also, and it's not just Microsoft. Basically, all the big technology companies are working on this now because bias in your software is actually a mistake, right? It's not It's not a good thing. You don't want to have a problem with the way that your algorithm is operating. You want to have it actually work equally and fairly for all groups of people. And these, you know, these bias and fairness issues are serious problems. They really do reproduce a lot of the problems that you find in society, for example, in terms of uh, racism and sexism and other issues like that. Once again, technology producers don't want to be doing the wrong thing, but it turns out that you have to actually try to do the right thing. The right thing doesn't happen all on its own, right? You have to actually put attention into it and you have to develop the right tools. And it's hard to develop those tools. Uh, it's take, it takes years of work sometimes to, and th- these tools are still being developed right now. Um, so they're not perfect yet, but they're a vast improvement over what uh, was available in the past. And with these with these tools now, we actually have the opportunity to find that bias and go through the technology through the machine learning models and figure out what exactly is going wrong there and saying, okay, this is where the mistake is happening. We can tweak that and solve that problem. And it creates overall a better technology and, and more trust for technology. This is the way that technology companies are looking at it, which is that if people don't trust them, people are not going to want to use their technology. Um, so, of course, there's a self-interested aspect to that also. There's not just the altruistic, we want to make a better world. That does exist. Um, but there's also that ultimately for our own company, we need to be thinking about uh, how we you know, make people help people trust us, um, because if people don't trust the technology, they're not going to use it. There is another way that ethics and AI interplay, and it's one you probably thought of before. And if you haven't, you probably should. It's privacy. With more and more of our lives becoming digital, through locations of our phone, social media, or Alexa even listening to our conversations, the question is, how much of that information is being used to learn about us? What kind of extrapolations is it making? And do we really want AI and the companies that control them to know quite that much about our personal lives? First of all, smartphones collect a huge amount of data about us. They collect our location data. They they collect, um, and it's not just smartphones, right? All of this technology is collecting really a huge amount of data. And it's become clear over time. It used to be, I would say, kind of the, the default 
thinking among people who are developing technology uh, was that more data is better. The more data you collect, the more information you have and the more use you can make of it. Um, But pretty soon after a while, they figured out, oh, first of all, collecting data and storing it is expensive. It's also a liability if you get hacked. Um, It's also got privacy issues about it, which makes people not trust you. Um, There's actually a kind of a level of data collection that is bad and and this is it's taken a while to come to this conclusion, but I think that technologists are coming to it now, which is that they should not be collecting as much data as they can. Data is actually not something that should be maximized. It's something that should be optimized in a different sort of way, which is that can you actually help your customer through the data you're collecting? Don't collect a bunch of data that's useless. Um, that's just a liability. Collect data that makes sense for you to collect um, and not the other data. Now the question is, is that level of data collection that's useful for them actually still good for us, right, as individuals? Or is this something that's going to be harmful for us? Um, And the answer is, there's always going to be problems with security breaches. Uh, There's been lots of security breaches that have stolen huge amounts of data and spread them all over the world. So that is a huge problem. It's something that we should be concerned about. Uh, Other ideas having to do with privacy in terms of, you know, do we like personalized ads? Are those ads actually helpful to us or are they not actually, you know, something that we find to be useful? Having microphones listening to us all the time, I think, is not a good thing. Uh, There have been lots of media coverage of those over the last few years where people have been, you know, talking to their, you know, speaker in their house, whatever form of speaker that might be, and finding out later Um, you know, people in other countries were actually listening to what they were saying in their houses. And the reason they were doing that is because part of the end user license agreement said that the corporation, if they had trouble understanding what you said, they would send it to some real live people who would listen to it to try to figure out what you said so they could correct their machine learning algorithm uh, to make the model better for understanding more types of people's voices. The surveillance capacity going on behind this is that a lot of this, this technology was actually pushed forward by governments who are looking to have easier ways to monitor people because, you know, if the U.S. government wants to find terrorists and uh, the easiest way to do that is by listening to people, right? (laughs) And so the U.S. government can't necessarily do that directly because of the way the laws are structured, although they can under certain circumstances, you know, if they get a judge to approve these sorts of things. If a corporation is collecting that data and then you can get a court order to collect that data from the corporation, then all of a sudden you've got a source of information that you didn't have in the past. So there are absolutely questions concerned about this. And and my friends on social media say all the time to each other, hey, I was talking about this the other day. I did not look for it on Google. I did not, uh, you know, do various other things. And then all of a sudden I see an ad for this thing that I was talking about. And uh, they're wondering, how is it that uh, social media is listening to me? And the answer is, We don't know, and they're not going to tell us, right? Uh, Facebook has said over and over again that they don't do that kind of monitoring. But however, they can easily work with another company that does. So for example, if if, uh, you have an Amazon device in your home, home that is collecting that data, then it gets collected by Amazon. And Amazon can send something over to Facebook saying, hey, advertise something at this person on Facebook. And we say, oh, that's really creepy. Um, And I think it's a, you know, fairly reasonable thing to say that, yes, that is creepy. But and so they have to recognize that this is not necessarily good from a technological perspective, from a sales perspective, right? Because if people start saying, um, hey, I'm getting these advertisements that obviously indicate that something is listening to me in my household, 
then you know that drives business away. People stop to stop trusting you. So I think there's this balance that has to be struck, right? We need to have a certain expectation of privacy in our homes. And ultimately, that's a user thing, right? We can choose not to have these smart speakers listening to us if we want to. We can choose to keep our smartphones in like a Faraday cage or something like that, right? A, a, something that's going to block them from collecting that information and transferring it or, or like keeping it in a box with like styrofoam, you know, noise proof padding around it inside a inside a Faraday cage so it can't uh, communicate with the uh, outside world. But that's kind of an extreme measure to take, and people are not going to generally do that. But these are questions that we have to ask, right? It's not just the big tech companies that are at fault here. It's that the government has not regulated them, and individuals have also not exercised their own ability to make choices on these sorts of technologies. All this is technology that exists already. Now it's natural to take the next step. What kinds of AI would exist in the future? Here we can consider artificial general intelligence, or also known as AGI. This type of AI steps beyond just making a decision about whether or not you're approved for a loan. Instead, AGI is much closer to the intelligence a human being might have. So right now, artificial intelligence is... The, the way they're designed, they're all very narrow in, in the way they operate. So, for example, you have artificial vision, which looks at images, and you have natural language processing, which looks at, at uh, how language works, and it either interprets it from hearing it or it produces it to talk back to you. Artificial general intelligence takes those types of narrow AIs and tries to fuse them together into something bigger. In other words, is there a way for us to take everything that a human can do and combine that together into one sort of general intelligence, which ultimately is is supposed to imitate what a human can do. Um, in other words, it'll be able to see, it'll be able to hear, it'll be able to produce language, it'll be able to not only do math, but also be able to perhaps understand the emotions that you have when you see your friends or family. It, in other words, it'll have empathy. It's not only a matter of how powerful or smart an AGI is, it's also a matter of speed. AGI or AI could also think much faster than us. And this could be a problem. First of all, humans run at a certain speed, I think is the first thing to recognize, right? I talk at a certain speed, uh, other people talk at a certain speed, and so our brains are designed to work at that. That seems to be the optimal level of communication for humans, for example. Uh, when we talk about AI, I hesitate to use the word thinking because I think that thinking is not the right word. You, we can definitely say it calculates faster than us, and it calculates at orders of magnitude and faster than humans operate. And so, for example, if there's a cyber attack, this is, I think, one of the prime examples of where uh, automated systems are operating right now in ways that are really dangerous. There are automated systems that cyber attack each other around the world all the time. They, they do cyber defense and cyber offense. So uh, you'll have a cyber offensive system which goes and it starts trying to attack you know, is it the U.S. government? Is it a power grid? Is it a corporation? Uh, and then that that uh, whoever's responsible for defending against that will automatically defend against it. Turns out it has to do that much faster than a human can operate. And so the question is, if humans can't do this anymore, we have to automate it. And as these systems become more and more powerful, we're actually uh, risking entering a very unstable situation. For example, if a, if a cyber attacker can break through those defenses and it only takes a fraction of a second, then all of a sudden you've opened up 
an entire computer system, whether it's a database or maybe it's controls over a nuclear power plant or things like that. I think it's become obvious in the last few years that there are some things that should not be connected to the Internet in any way, shape or form. Right. They need to be completely isolated so that uh, they're not vulnerable to these sorts of things. But the speed question is a genuine one. Uh, Pope Francis has talked about this. He used the word rapidification, which is, uh, you know, something that is a it's an obvious word to use if you're a Spanish speaker, for example. But uh, brought into English, I think it's a useful loan word, which is that everything is getting faster and AI is going to take that same thing and make it faster and faster, both to the benefit of humanity, but also potentially to our detriment. And we need to be aware of that and take the measures that we need to take in order to make sure that it's being used for good and not bad. Another issue is that as AI gets more powerful, it also becomes less transparent. There is a limit to the way human minds operate, right? <laughs> um, we we know we our minds are adapted to work with each other with other with other humans basically, and as we're making things very very fast, we are making systems that are going to be beyond comprehension. There is a mathematical proof that came out I think a few years ago. I can't remember exactly when, but the mathematical proof was developed by a computer and it ended up being a 13 gigabyte text file, which at the time was larger than all of Wikipedia, which meant it was completely impossible for a human to actually understand. Nobody knows whether it was the accurate proof or not. However, because that happened, it drew the attention of another mathematician who's a, he's, he started as a mathematical prodigy and he still is that way. Um, and he looked at it and he said, oh, we can solve this problem. And he wrote it just out as one paper and he solved the problem. And we didn't have to end up using that 13 gigabyte text file and, and, you know, understanding how that operated because there was a human who could do it, but it was one very particular human, right? <laughs> uh, not everybody is going to be able to understand that. And so we also, when we're thinking about explanation and understanding these systems, we also have to think about who is going to be able to understand it. Um, and it might not just be us average folks, right? Somehow it's going to have to be interpreted or, or given to us in a way that we can understand, but that might not be a very accurate way of understanding what's actually going on there. Artificial general intelligence seems awfully close to science fiction, yet people are seriously considering it. So is it really possible to achieve an AGI? The ultimate question there, of course, is whether it can be conscious or not, or whether it can actually ever understand anything, or whether it's just a simulation of those sorts of things. Because people are already working very hard on the simulation side of it, which is to simulate what it would be like to interact with a person or to simulate what uh, another conscious individual would be like. But whether it actually is or is not conscious and whether that's possible at all is a really hard, not only technical question, but it's ultimately a philosophical question. Can uh, this artificial general intelligence actually be conscious? What is consciousness? And uh, can it understand meaning? Can it understand or can it only imitate understanding based on what it sees humans doing and imitating us? And these are really deep and complicated questions. I think there's good reason to say that AGI in the in terms of artificial consciousness is probably impossible. I've seen a lot of good arguments on that favor. The arguments that are in favor of saying that it is possible, I think are weaker forms of argumentation that largely consist of reducing what the human mind does saying that the human mind actually is not uh, doing a lot of the things that we feel like we're experiencing that we're doing. But yeah, it's a huge question. And as we're going into the future, um, I believe the most recent count that I saw was that there are at least 50 organizations in the world with billions of dollars behind them that are specifically working on AGI. So there's a lot of money. There's a lot of talent going into this. 
Um, but we still don't know whether it's possible or not, or whether it's good. Whether or not you think AGI is achievable, thinking about it can also tell us something about ourselves. What does it mean to be human? What is consciousness, really? What does it tell us about how our brains work and how unique, or not, the human mind is? There's a profound technological impulse in humanity, perhaps. No doubt this went way back in time, right? Two million years ago when people were making stone tools, all of a sudden they realized, I can make things. I can use my hands and my brain together to make, you know, a pointy stick, or I can put a sharp rock on the end of the pointy stick. And pretty soon, you know, over the course of millions of years, it has started uh, kind of exponentially increasing. And we're on this point on the curve now, where things are going really, really fast. So I think there's this technological impulse in humanity. Uh, It's not necessarily an impulse towards innovation, but it's an impulse towards creation. And I think that um, whether you come from a theological perspective or a non-theological perspective, um, either one of those, I think, can can agree with that. Either if you think that we're created, for example, in the image of God, then you'd say, oh, well, God creates things, and so humans create things also. Even if you're completely secular, you can say, okay, humans created a conception of God that is a creating God, and therefore we create things based on our conception of God. And once again, that is, it's basically the same thing, but with a further step uh, added to it. This idea of creating an artificial general intelligence or an artificial consciousness is uh, it's illustrative of the fact that we want to create. We want to create these new and, uh, you know, ultimately something that's like ourselves, right? We can look at, you know, the hopes and dreams of religions or other sorts of cultural artifacts that we can see in terms of literature and stories and movies and recognize that this impulse in us is operating there. But then the question is ultimately the ethical question, right? How do we take this natural impulse and turn it towards good and not towards something bad? Because there are lots of opportunities for this to go very wrong. And those have been explored in a lot of different contexts, um, whether it's through mythology or religion or through literature. Um, It's really an opportunity for us to step back and reflect and say, the right way to use this technology is to help society And what are the ways that we can actually get those concrete benefits in terms of helping people, whether it's helping them make better choices or whether it's helping with education or with healthcare, or other sorts of things. Uh, Those technologies are being developed right now, and some of them are going to be fantastic. There's, There's going to be great technologies that come out of healthcare in the next few years as we understand more about the human body than we've ever known before. Um, and it's going to be a fantastic opportunity for helping people, um, But at the same time, we need to make sure that we are not removing the most human and humane aspects of humanity from the environment. We don't want to technologize the environment so much that it's no longer humane, uh, because ultimately humans are made for relationship. We're, we're, We're meant to relate to each other. And those relationships, I think, are one of the most important things that can actually be damaged by technology. We need to make sure that technology is serving human relationships and not either substituting for it or supplanting it or damaging the way we interact with each other. And I think there needs to be a lot of work done uh, in the next few years, probably not just the next few years, but probably forever for the rest of, you know, the history of technology and humanity, uh, where we need to be making sure that technology is really serving people and not the reverse. Advanced AI doesn't have to be about fear. In fact, AI has enormous potential for good. Pope Francis said it himself, AI should be used for the good of the environment and the good of people, 
and it's possible that we can use AI to help with issues like social justice, climate change, feeding the world, and other complex problems that could be helped along by a super-thinking AI. There are a lot of opportunities for AI to really benefit the world in terms of agriculture, in terms of uh, getting new and better medicines, in terms of uh, working with climate change. I mean, particularly with efficiency and energy efficiency, one of the things that AI does best is determine how to make things more efficient. And these studies have already been done. Uh, for example, data centers can save a huge amount of power if you just apply a machine learning algorithm to them to figure out how to do that. And uh, so they figured out how to save 10%, 20%, even 40% on certain types of power consumption at data centers, thanks to these uh, certain types of machine learning models. There really is a lot of opportunity there to make the world efficient and really make it better. And so I think there's a lot to look forward to that it is going to have a positive impact on society. But at the same time, there's all these other things to think about. I think that there it's now become obvious that we need to solve these problems, and there are a lot of good people who are working on this. Looking at all this together, it's no wonder that the Vatican takes a special interest in the ethics of AI. And as we move forward, it pays to think about all of the different ways that AI affects our lives and affects us as a culture. It pays to question how can we make it more ethical, and how can businesses and companies move forward in the most ethical manner possible. Once we do this, we might be able to solve some of the world's biggest and most complex problems. This conversation actually made me feel a lot more hopeful than I thought it would. AI has enormous power to do good. Spark Dialogue Podcast is produced by me, Elizabeth Fernandez. You can find us on the web at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or any of your podcasting platforms. Remember, if you're a patron of this podcast, to check out the bonus content at patreon.com slash sparkdialogue. And I'll be back in the beginning of July with a new episode. See you then. The background music you heard were clips from Restless Sleep by Gordon Ark, Black Snow by Airtone, The Sun Smiles on Light Sail 2 by Gordon Ark, and Another Way by Psychic. These songs are licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution 3 license, and more information and links to these songs can be found in the show notes at sparkdialogue.com.